So I'll be reading 2 Corinthians 5, um, verses 16 through 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, John. So in our series, uh, these snapshots of grace, snapshots of salvation, last week we found ourselves in the courtroom and we were looking at a doctrine called justification in which we were declared righteous. And uh, today we are moving from out of the courtroom into more of a relational realm, and that is reconciliation. And so if we're out of the courtroom and we're in the realm of friendship, uh, these two are related. So justification where we are declared righteous and not guilty under the burden of the law, uh, it makes reconciliation possible, and we will see how that is. Now, what reconciliation adds to our, this lens that we're going to look through, it adds to this picture of salvation that we used to be friends. You can even see that in the meaning of the word or the etymology of the word, where it means re is again, and reconciliar means to meet. In other words, to re-meet. And so it means to, to settle a dispute, to bring two parties back together. We're going to be looking at a number of passages today, but um, most of them have to do with the number five, okay? So Matthew chapter five, we're going to spend some time in, uh, and then Second Corinthians chapter five, and you also see Romans five referred to. And so we're going to be moving around a bit, so most of these are going to be on the screen uh, in front of you. I want you to take a look at Matthew chapter five, verses 23 and 24. So what we have here is a picture of, um, of reconciliation. Now, this is helpful for me because we're going to be talking about divine human reconciliation, but here is one of the examples in Scripture of human-to-human reconciliation. And so in this, we see that if you look at and you're reading through the verse there, you're going to see, first of all, two parties. So you're going to see the guy who's at the altar about to give God a gift. And you're going to see the other person, which we could call the offended brother. Now, recognizing that the brother is offended, the guy at the altar, who we could call the gift bearer, he decides to leave his gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. And he really does so at some personal cost. So if this guy was at the temple and, uh, and he had purchased a gift and he was there and he was literally about to, to, to do this, uh, he had to have the emotional capital to say, oh man, I have to go do this. He's going to take up time 
in order to do this. And, and who knows? I don't know where this offended brother is. If he leaves his gift at the altar, does it, does it spoil? Does it get taken? Does it, you know, and so he's going to bear a lot of cost to himself. And so he goes and he is reconciled with his brother. I believe this picture is going to be helpful for us because uh, it's going to have a couple elements of reconciliation. One of these elements is the fact that we've got two parties. Okay, this could be an individual, it could be a group, uh, but something has happened between these two parties. Second of all, we're going to see that someone has to take the initiative in these things. And someone is going to have to receive the initiative. And then finally, we're going to find out that there is a renewed relationship or a new reality emerges. In other words, the guy gets to come back and he approaches the altar with a new reality, like he has been repaired, this relationship has been repaired. And so we're going to look at those three elements, the two parties, who is it that has the initiative, who does the response, and then finally, what is this new reality uh, that we are um, approaching? In reconciliation, we have two parties who used to be friends that now are at odds. And generally, it can be sometimes unintentional, but often it is due to willful actions. Now, there's a key point here. In our case, in divine human reconciliation, it's not just an issue that one party has an issue. Actually, there are obstacles on both parties' accounts. Both parties are offended. Both God and mankind are offended in some way. I want to look, first of all, at what obstacles God has with reconciliation. So if you go way back to Genesis, the very, very beginning of the human story, Genesis chapter 3, you have a paradise where God has placed his creation and given them a perfect setting, and he only gave them one command. Well, the enemy of God, Satan, tempts them, they disobey that one command, and then this conversation ensues. God asks the question, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Second, he says, what is this that you have done? Okay, so a line has been crossed, obviously, and that is what we call a trespass. And then he moves on and says, because you have done this, okay, here comes a verdict. And then we've got this abiding consequence. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out. And so man and woman were sent from this paradise out of it. And an angel was put up and guarded. And so they were cast out of the garden. Now, this is not the only problem. This was just the beginning of it. Because as scripture begins to unfold, even in the same book in Genesis, we see that God has to cleanse the earth because humankind has become so wicked that except for Noah and his family, they only imagine evil continually. And God wipes the earth clean with a flood. This is also in Genesis. Romans chapter 2 says that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for, the, for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you, think, you see the language there about judgment, and once again, we find ourselves in the courtroom. So the problem is that we have a holy God that must, because of his character, react against that which destroys his creation. And so we are brought into this position of judgment Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so the two, this, the enemies here, this is actually best seen as mutual. So we are enemies with God, and God, because of that sin, was an enemy of us. And, and so here we stand. God has wrath and enmity against sin. That is the obstacle of reconciliation. 
But it's not that we're over here being the neutral party. Men and women also have shame and they have fear because of this. Back in Genesis chapter 3, it says, And Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And we have been hiding ever since. Now, it moves even beyond this initial fear and this initial shame. Like, what is God going to do because of this, this trespass? Colossians chapter 1 points out that it's even worse. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. So we are not neutral parties. We are alienated for one thing. Like God gave us this garden that we were supposed to have fellowship with him, and now we are alienated from it. We are cast away from our true home country, which is fellowship with the creator God. So we're alienated, and now we suspect him. We are suspicious. We are hostile of his stance toward us. And so we are hostile, and not only that, we continue to do the evil deeds that our first parents did. So the fellowship that we share with him in the beginning has been broken, and there are obstacles on both sides. So we see that the two parties, there is something that stands between us. We used to be friends, but now we are at odds. And whose action brought us there? Our actions brought us there. So if we're going back to uh, Matthew chapter 5, where we see these two parties that have this problem... Well, now we see that somebody is going to have to do something. Somebody is going to have to initiate it. Somebody's going to have to make the first move. Now, now we know that. I mean, for those of you who have relationships, which all of us have relationships in one form or another, uh, when there is some kind of falling out, there's that a period of, of wrath, right? I mean, where you're just, I mean, you're burning and you are replaying conversations and you are, you are justifying and all of these things. But eventually, if there's going to be any sort of joining together or dispute resolution, somebody is going to have to put their hand out first. Now, In salvation, who is the party that initiates this? Well, I believe that because of our settled hostility to God, that we are simply too sinful to actually approach him, and it precludes the possibility that we would be the ones who initiate it. We are too shamed, too hostile. And so we see that God takes the initiative. So there is divine initiative. Now, I'm going to put a couple verses up on the slides here. Now, in this first verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to note one important thing. Of all the times that reconciliation, that word is used, only one of them is active. As in, like, somebody acts and does something. And it is the first one, and it says that God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So the only active use of this word is used of God the Father. Now, there's certainly a human side to this, and we will look at it, but God's initiative in salvation is unquestionable. Further, it's not just God's activity. There's an objective aspect to reconciliation. What I mean by that, in the next two verses, you will see the phrase that God was reconciling. And in the next verse after that, you see that we were reconciled. And if you look at those, you kind of notice that there's kind of a past finished flavor to that. We were reconciled. God did do this in Christ. And so there is actually a very objective uh, reconciliation where it is a fact. 
It is history. It is something that happened, and it happened at the cross. Though through Christ, God was addressing, and this is what's happening here. So you remember, we both are turned away from each other at the garden. We've got two parties who are at odds. But in the cross, God was addressing his obstacle so that he was able to face us. He was making it possible for us to come back to him. To go back to the human illustration, if of those two parties... There's an offended brother over here, and then there's a guy at the altar. And the guy at the altar says, you know what? I'm leaving this here. I'm going to go seek reconciliation. In that picture, it is actually God who is the gift bearer. He is the one who came to the point where he said, I have no animosity to this brother, and I am going to go seek him. And he did this because he took care of the wrath. He took care of the animosity, and he healed the rift caused by our disobedience. And so his obstacles have been removed. And that is why throughout Scripture you find all throughout, like for instance, 2 Peter 3.9, where it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And uh, later on you have Paul saying, "I, I appeal to you, I am pleading with you, be reconciled to God. Well, why is it even possible for, for God to, to put this appeal out to us? It's because the obstacle on his side was handled at the cross. This is what it means when the Bible says that God reconciled the world to himself. That for Christ's sake, because of Jesus' work for us, God now feels towards sinners as though they had never sinned. Now, that is absolutely staggering. And that's where the justification in the law comes in that we talked about the other week. Uh, He is declared, we are declared righteous because of this. And it is just a staggering, staggering concept. And so the cross made reconciliation possible. And that is the objective side of this. So here, this reconciliation, God reconciled himself to us. And that stands as an open offer. Now, as we know, It takes two to be reconciled. There's another party in this. So if that is God's side of this, where he said, I took care of my wrath. I removed my obstacle. I am no longer having to pour down judgment upon you. Instead, I can give you this invitation. What is our part in this? We have to receive this objective work. So in Matthew chapter 5, that story, we are actually that offended party that God reconciles to himself. So there we are over there, nursing our suspicions, nursing our hostility and our grudges, but we have to respond to that objective reconciliation. And so in, um, I'm going to re- display a few more verses here. So here are two verses. You remember I said that, that the only time it's used actively is when it says God reconciled us through Christ. Well, if you notice these verses, there is an appeal for us to be reconciled and to receive reconciliation. That is our part. Now, in order to be able to do that, that really makes us humble ourselves. We have to set aside our self-effort. We have to let him be God. He reconciled us to himself. We did not reconcile God. It's dangerous to try. So you almost imagine in that picture, whereas let's just say that we put ourselves in the gift bearer, the initiator. All right, so God is the offended party over there, and I say, "Mm, okay, I'm doing okay, but um, 
over there, he has a problem with me. So I'm going to do something to, to, to reconcile this. Well, this is really dangerous. This takes the initiative that God says and say, no, God, I've, I've got this on my own. And we do this, uh, we may just say to ourselves, you know, hey, maybe there's some sort of self-perception you know, problem. You know, God, I just need to change his mind about me. I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll try to reason with him like, you know, things are not so bad after all. Or we may try to do some self-redemption where we go do sacrificial acts that maybe, just maybe, uh, he will accept us on that basis. Or maybe if I just work hard enough, where I'm just righteous enough, perhaps God this time will do it. That is pseudo-reconciliation. That is false reconciliation. Our part in this, it is very clear, is not to appease God, but to appropriate what he did for us. Appropriate the benefits of the cross and the death of Christ. Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21, that beautiful verse where everything is swapped out. For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so we dare not get that mixed up. There's a uh, summary given by a, an old theologian named John Thiessen that I just thought was so helpful in clarifying this. So he says, at first God and man, mankind, men and women, stood face to face with each other. In sinning, Adam turned his back upon God, and then God turned his back upon Adam. Christ's death has satisfied the demands of God, and now God has turned his face again toward man. It remains for man to turn around to face God. Since God has been reconciled by the death of his son, mankind is now entreated to be reconciled to God. You kind of see how that works. Beautiful picture. So we've seen these two parties, and we've seen that God's the initiator, and that we have to respond so what is the new reality? So in reconciliation, there's always a new reality, and that new reality is based on a renewed relationship. In Matthew chapter 5, it's in the last verse, where it says, and then come and offer your gift. Now, if you've ever been in relational strife, and let's just say, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. You're, you're supposed to keep short accounts with people, Right? And you've attempted, but either because neither of you are ready for it, and you have tried, you put out the hand, or, or perhaps you're just both stewing, and say you sleep on that thing. Have you ever felt that feeling when you wake up the next morning, and you kind of had a fitful night's sleep because this was weighing on your soul, and when you woke up, you remembered, it's still there. It's heavy. There's nothing exactly like it. And so when that is lifted, there is a renewed relationship, a new reality. Every time we come together as, as a church and we take communion, we take the Lord's Supper, uh, it says that we are supposed to do that asking God to examine us. And let's just say that we have kind of a modern day leaving our gift at the altar. Like you, in that quiet moment, you're, you're about to remember the Lord's death and, and something is pinging in your mind. Like that brother or sister over there is offended with me. And I have done nothing about it. And so you decide that there was some fault on your own. And so you say, I am going to not take the elements today 
so that I can go make that call. I'm going to walk that aisle. I'm going to initiate that conversation. And so you actually say, I'm going to leave this gift at the altar. I'm going to, I'm going to walk away and handle this. And so you do that. And thankfully, that person responds to you, and there's a renewed relationship. How do you think you're going to feel the next time you approach the Lord's table? And you look over there, and that person that you have reconciled with is there. There is a renewed reality. And isn't it true that whenever we walk through something like this, we are never quite the same? We're never the same with that person. And, uh, and there's this renewed reality. Let's just talk about a couple new realities that happen when we are reconciled with God. There is new life. So now there is no greater reality than being saved by his life. The first verse there in Romans chapter 5 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So you have here kind of this lesser to greater argument where you have the death of Christ made our reconciliation possible. But then the righteousness of Christ's life gives us all of his righteousness and we are saved. And, and so this is just the beginning of our salvation where we were declared righteous and it's as we grow in faith and in the knowledge of God and that is when we stand before God someday glorified and perfected and we shall be saved. There's a 19th century spiritual song called Loved with Everlasting Love and, and those of you who came to faith late in life, um, I, was, I came to faith when I was about six years old. And, uh, and so those of us who were saved at a younger age may not have had this experience, but I've had people tell me that when they accepted Christ, when they realized that they had peace with God, their entire almost outlook changed. And somebody tried to capture this in a song, and they would say, heaven above is deeper blue, earth around is sweeter green, that which glows in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. You know, this, this can be yours today. This is something where if your soul is restless and it's because you are striving, you, you know that something is wrong and that you are, you are trying to get God to accept you, it can be yours today to realize like, no, his reconciliation has happened. He reconciled you to him. We just have to be humble enough to accept it and appropriate it on his terms. And when you do that, you can be absolutely sure that you are saved and you will have new life. Not only that, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, it says that he was making peace by the blood of his cross. And so there's an objective and a subjective aspect of peace as well. So when we accept God's offer, we have peace with him. Like, he does not have anything against us. The conflict is gone. But at the same time, we also have rest in our souls. And so there's an abiding sense of peace. And what that does is it moves us to gratitude, right? When we think about what God has done for us, when we sing these songs here, your soul is lifted up because you have accepted what he has offered. It also makes us trust him. When we know that as we are the offended brother. If, if somebody has come to us and they have left their gift at the altar and they have come and they have taken the trouble to say, hey, things are not right. I want them to be right. 
It makes you trust that person, that they have your best interests in mind. And you can be assured, because he moved heaven and earth for you, that he has your best interests in mind. Another new reality is our ambassadorship. So the Apostle Paul says that he has the ministry of reconciliation. He saw that his job was to go and tell people that the cross happened. Reconciliation has happened. Now you have to just come to it and receive it, that other part of it. And he says that he was an ambassador of Christ. And really, all of us are ambassadors for Christ. Now, an ambassador has fulfilled his or her duty when he or she has come and and has represented their master well. And that is our job. You know, if we get a hold of this, it is actually going to change the way that we approach people. Like, when we are going along, have you ever just gone into a busy place and, and it just kind of struck you, she needs the Lord, that person needs the Lord. That person needs the Lord. And if you're thinking to yourself, the reconciliation has happened. It just needs to be appropriated. Then that is how we are ambassadors. We present that news to anybody that we possibly can. Finally, it is also a pattern for our own human-to-human reconciliation. You know, it is tough. You know that feeling. Like when you feel like, oh no, I've done it again. I'm going to have to humble myself and go to that person, but I can't. Like, I mean, I'm just like choking on my pride right now. Well, when you get a hold of, of what God has done, how he initiated, and you just have an opportunity to do so yourself, then you may just be the one to say, Lord, you did this. You initiated. I am going to initiate reconciliation with this person. When somebody approaches you and say, hey, I know things are not, not well, and I know I did something wrong, you're going to be so much quicker if you understand God's reconciliation and say, yes. Yes, of course, I forgive you. Yes, I want this relationship repaired. The passage in Ephesians chapter 2 even speaks of racial reconciliation. And so you have the Jewish people who had all of their covenants and the law and all of these things, and God was working through them. And then you have the non-Jewish people. And God says that the reconciliation on the cross wiped out the hostility between those two groups. And so those people have been joined together as one people of God. Colossians chapter 3 kind of summarizes the human-to-human reconciliation that we we should have. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So, I trust today that you see that this gathering right here, this is not about you attending here more. It's not about you giving. It is not about whether or not you get to take the elements when communion. It's not whether or not you get baptized. Those are all evidences of life. But what we want today is for you to know peace with God. He wants you to love him. He wants you to be close to him. And so if you leave today purposing in your heart that I am going to do more, I'm going to enter more into church, I'm going to, I'm going to do these things, that would be a failure. In fact, that would be insulting to God rather than honoring him. And so every one of us today, will you not acknowledge his kindness in reconciling himself and then appropriate that reconciliation? We receive it. We be reconciled. I pray that that would be true about every one of us today. Would you join me in prayer?
Father, you are kind, and you are so kind to remove this burden from us. Lord, you are so kind to not make it so that we have to work and slave before you as if you are a harsh taskmaster. Thank you for being the one who took the initiative. Thank you for being the one who, who got up and at great personal expense, you handled your own obstacles so that we could come to you. Father, I ask now that if there is one that they would acknowledge that, that they're your child, but that they are striving in their spirit and they're just not sure of your position, uh, your stance toward them. I ask today that you would calm their spirit, help them to get a hold of this. Lord, if there is someone today who has been striving and working to gain your favor, hoping that maybe someday you would call them friend, I ask that today they would know that you are their friend, that you do not look at them as if you're going to pour the wrath on them. Lord, I just pray that they would come to that understanding today and that they would accept that offer of reconciliation. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.